Uh, we go straight through books of the Bible. So we're in 1 Corinthians. So if you'd open up to the Bible to letter 1 Corinthians, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Never assume we know where it's at. Written to a church in the city of Corinth from a man named Paul who used to be a Christian murderer and turned into a Christian martyr by an introduction to Jesus on the road to Damascus. is where we get our name. So we're going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Go through the 17 verses in there and uh, see what God has to say. So if you would follow along with me. Chapter 3, verse 1, says this. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I confess and and declare that your word is the only thing that can change a heart. The only thing that can cause a blind man to see. So I pray, Father, that your word will be spoken boldly today. The Holy Spirit, you'll move me out of the way and speak the words that you need to speak, whether they be words of conviction, words that cause us to confess and repent and to change, or words of comfort that give us encouragement in whatever situation we're in. May the name of Jesus be held high. May we understand more clearly what you have to say to your church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so... 1 Corinthians. Now, in another letter that Paul wrote called Colossians, that was written to a city called Colossae. We did a study on it uh, a couple years ago. Uh, Paul wrote in that book, I believe it's in chapter 2, that his mission from God was to bring as many people as possible to maturity in Christ. That's what he was trying to do with his life. And 
You can understand, therefore, as we've gotten to know the Corinthians, why Paul is so frustrated with this Corinthian church. Uh, this church, young and, and hip and growing and passionate and all these things, they have confessed belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have put their trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ to save them from their sins and to reconcile them back to God. So they have confessed that. And Paul said in chapter 1 of Corinthians that because of their confession and their faith, they have been enriched by grace in every way by the gospel. It says those words. You've been enriched in every way. You have everything that you need. Every gift that you need, you possess everything that you need to grow. But they refuse to act their age, spiritually speaking. That's the big frustration for Paul. So the Corinthian church, the church body, and that's the term that will be used often as we get deeper into Corinthians, it's like one adult-sized man-child. Okay, so picture a man-child, yeah, it's a great image, right? A man-child acting in ways that contradict their identity. Spiritual, right, we're talking spiritually, spiritual man-children, right? Adult-sized children, spiritually speaking, will always be self-destructive because they're acting in conflict to how they're supposed to act. They will always be relationally destructive. They will hurt those around them, harm them, because they are not doing what they ought to do. They're not fulfilling the role that they are designed to fulfill. And it will be missionally destructive. In other words, they will hurt themselves, they will hurt others, and they will hurt the church. So back in 2011, when I preached through Colossians, there's, uh, I believe, chapter 3, speaks a lot about maturity. And as I was kind of researching just this concept of maturity and and lack thereof in our culture, I came across a guy named Stanley Thornton. I preached on or mentioned him in a sermon in the past. You may have heard of him. Stanley is part of a growing subculture of adults who choose to remain immature. And you may have seen this guy on the news, um, but what they, you have a group of people, I don't know how big it is, but it's big enough to get news stories written about them, Um, a group of people that are suffering from what psychology would describe as a state of arrested development, they actually have a name for it, it's like infantilism or something, and these physically mature adults choose to live as babies. Now, you think, well, what does that mean? Like they walk around saying goo goo gaga? Well, yeah. And they have adult sized diapers with adult sized things in them. Okay. They have adult pacifiers, adult bottles, adult sized cribs, of which you can get plans for online if you're curious. I could show you where that's at. They have adult sized high chairs that are designed for the adult. And these aren't small. Stanley's not a small guy. Okay, he's a big boy, so he had to design a big chair for himself. They even go so far as to enlist caregivers who mother them, feed them bottles, even feed them like a nursemaid at times. Yeah. 
So I did a little more, re- just like, well, adult-sized babies. I wouldn't Google that either because you'll find a subculture that's very pervasive and there, and you're like, what is this? Now, adult babies, right, that's an easy target, right? I, I got a list of jokes that I've just been going through all week, right? It's easy. But, but truly, um, I have some compassion, and it's there a little bit, and you go, I, I can't, it's easy to judge what I see. I can't judge how that individual got to that place. I don't know. Probably a lot to getting there. At the same time, one thing is very certain. That is not how things ought be. Regardless of why they're that way, that's not how things ought be. I'm pretty sure that their parents didn't envision this life for them. Like, as a three-month-old, I hope when you grow up, you're still acting like a three-month-old. That is certainly not the vision. I know the vision for my kids of that. So a man living as an adult-sized baby is the poster child for Corinthian spirituality. Okay? So when you think about what the, what's Corinthians about, it's about people like Stanley, spiritually speaking, who are choosing to live as children and do childish things. And Christians have struggled with extended spiritual adolescence, well, for 2,000 years. Because guess what? We're still struggling with it today. Now, many of us have reasons that we use, excuses that we use, but biblically speaking, if an individual possesses the Holy Spirit in them, which is what happens when someone comes to faith and Jesus saves somebody, we know, if nothing else, we're certain spiritual adolescence is not how things ought to be. There's lots of forces that work to bring, but we know that's not how it ought to be. That's not the plan that God has for His children to remain as children. And you're like, what about childlike faith? Just shelve that for a second, okay? Now, many of us use lots of excuses. Some of us like to use our parents and our upbringing. Some of us like to blame our lack of education. Um, Some of us like to look at our childhood traumas, our unhappy marriages, our difficult circumstances, our strained finances, our miserable jobs, our lack of time, our family commitments, our age, our personalities, and our busy lives to justify our delayed spiritual growth. So the question is, what excuse do you use for not growing up in Christ? Because it probably is one. I have mine. Reasons. What is your excuse for not growing up in Christ, for not growing closer to the church? Now, the Corinthians believe that they've arrived. Like, they believe that, like, no, we are, we are there. But the truth is they're actually stuck in this extended spiritual adolescence, and it's tearing the church apart. It's destroying others. And when we talk about church, a lot of us kind of automatically go into this kind of institutional thing out there that we're not, like, we're talking about the family of families, people, people who gather as the body, as broken as we are, just like family, right? But the one thing we understand is we have a shared identity in Christ. So we know we are sinners saved by grace. We don't pretend not to be sinners saved by grace. Well, some do. 
But we are sinners and we see that. So when we talk about the church, we're talking about people, not just this thing out there. And they're destroying the church by how they're behaving. And so Paul is going to remind them what they are. That they are an incomplete building project that's still being built up. And the Father has an intention for them, a goal for them to grow up into, to, to grow up and to be built up into something in particular. He has a vision. Like any parent has a vision for their child. The Father has a vision for the church. So he starts off by reminding the Corinthians where they came from, right? He says, brothers, when I came to you, when I, when I came to you, I didn't address you as spiritual people because they were all spiritually dead. They were not believers. They didn't love Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. So Paul comes in, and he gets kicked out of the synagogue. He has a pretty hard time planting the church. I think you read Acts 18. But he says, I talk to you as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, and I fed you with milk. Right, not solid food. They were chill. They were children, as all unbelievers are. They didn't go in and jam a stake in their mouth and start talking about like transubstantiation or some theological term. Like he started with basics, fed them slowly, helped them to get strong in Christ. But then he goes, "You weren't ready for it, and even now you're not ready. Even now you're not ready." Implying that they're still infants. He's like. You guys came to believe. And in your confession and belief of the gospel, the Holy Spirit was given to you. Your heart was changed. You you possessed the Spirit of God within you, and yet you are still living as if you're not spiritual. Your lifestyle and what you do, and you'll see some of the details of it as we go on, it contradicts who you are, who you've become, who God has made you to be. The Corinthians say they love Jesus, but they look like they love the world. And so one of two things is happening. Because you may know somebody, maybe you're kind of this person, like, man, this person talks about loving Jesus, but man, they look like they love the world. So one of two things happens is happening with that kind of person. One is that they're miserable. And that's actually my hope for them. Anyone says that they love Jesus, but they are actually loving the world and following the world and and listening to the world, my hope is that they're miserable because their identity really is in Christ and the flesh is against the Spirit, so there's a war going on in their heart. And some people are able to cover that up by like antidepressants and pills and counseling, whatever. Like They can kind of dumb the, the war that's going on in there, but the reality is there's a war because they have the Spirit of God in them and they're miserable. And you begin to see it on their face, in their life, and you're like, you know, I'm not glad you're suffering, but that's the Spirit of God fighting in you. The worst one is the people who just like the Christian label, but they're very comfortable living in the world. They're not believers. And they just have a happy face. And they oh, we're living in sin. And it doesn't make them budge at all, and there's no misery in their hearts, because their hearts are ultimately dead. That's the two options that I see. And so in Corinth, you have what I think are believers, actually. Paul calls them believers. They're just simply not acting their age, spiritually speaking. He's writing to people who he says have the Holy Spirit. They possess the Holy Spirit. They've been enriched with the Holy Spirit. They, in other words, he's he's asking them to do something that they are equipped to do. Like, he's not asking them something that they can't, they're not capable of. 
So like when I sit down with somebody and I establish that they are a believer in Christ, they confess that, they, that Jesus Christ is their Savior, they believe that He is their Lord, they've said that with their mouth, and I can, as they're talking about all the sin, I can go, stop. Repent. Turn from your sin. You don't love Jesus. You're dishonoring Jesus. And I can expect them to respond. I'm not asking them to do anything they're not equipped to do. The same with Paul and Corinth. So you can't expect a two-year-old to act like a 20-year-old, right? But you can expect a 20-year-old not to act like a two-year-old. And I remember Matt Chandler, who's the leader of Acts 29, great pastor down in Texas. He, uh, he once talked about the idea of, you know, an, an infant breastfeeding is really sweet, but a 20-year-old breastfeeding is pretty sick. So that's what Paul is calling. He's like, what are you doing? And so Paul comes at him pretty hard. Comes at him pretty hard. Because he says, you're, you're acting human. You're acting fleshly. In other words, you're, you're not living as the chosen people of God that you are, the empowered people of God that you are, the governed people, protected people of God that you are. See, when someone becomes a Christian, here's what happens. They experience in that moment, the moment God opens their eyes, they experience all, okay, all of the transforming grace in their heart immediately. They are irrevocably saved, irrevocably set apart for God, Irrevocably declared innocent and forgiven. But what happens over time is they receive that reforming grace of their flesh being changed. Over time, they begin to look more and more like Jesus. And so we have to believe when someone has the Spirit of God that there is going to be some level of progression. And even if it's kind of like a sailboat, right? If you've never been sailing, like sailboats tack, they go... Left and right, right? So if you're heading straight and you're going this way, it seems like you're off track. But if you step back and look at the pattern, you can see that it's going in direction. We should see that in our lives. You should be, guess what? If you're a Christian, you should be a little more mature next year than you are now. You should grow. You shouldn't regress. Not to say that you don't have, we like the word seasons, right? Christianity, this is a season of difficulty, right? I'm not suggesting you never have a moment of rebellion or you never fall flat in your face for a while. I'm not suggesting that, but there is a progression. There's not going back to diapers, is my point. The Corinthians have done that. And here's the evidence for it. They're picking teams. He tells them, like, well, I'll show you the example of you guys being babies, of you guys acting like the world, the clearest example of their juvenile spirituality is their disunity with one another. Their disunity as a church family. Now, you don't have to be in conflict with one another to be disunified. Did you know that? Like, we can all come attend here, we can all be here, and we can sit next to each other and never talk to each other and look unified, all right? But I want to know your names, and I want you to know my name and our names. We had a Bible study once for a men's group. It was like 25, 30 guys. 
And I stood back. And then I got in front. And I said, okay, guys, i got one thing to ask you. How many of you can actually say each other's names? So I'd already tested myself to see if I could do it. And I went through and was like, Bob, John, John. I named them all. I said, I shouldn't be the only one who knows all your names. But that's, that could be disunity. The disunity that's happening in this church is much worse. Paul says, you guys have jealousy and strife. You don't trust each other with anything. You're fighting with one another. You assume stuff about each other. You're trying to like one-up one another. You don't love each other at all. You want to be able to tell what someone's relationship with God is like? Catch that. Want to know what your relationship with God is like? Let's evaluate what your relationship with others is like. So you can tell a lot about one's relationship with God by how they treat other people, how they perceive other people, how they talk about other people, how they view people that are maybe less fortunate than them or more fortunate than them. So they are broken. And it's not the kind of behavior you expect from people with the Spirit of God, but it is the kind of behavior you expect from the people who don't have the Spirit of God. Why is that? Well, people who do not have the Spirit of God are enemies of God. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. In fact, in Romans 8, it says their mind, in Romans 8, 7, speaking about their mind, it says, for the mind that is set on the flesh which is those who are fleshly, those who are not believers, those who do not have the Spirit of God, those who are unspiritual. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, right? Guns aimed at God. I do not like you, God. I hate you, God. I want nothing to do with you, God. Hostile towards God. But, when God's Spirit is sent into a man's heart, the hostility that existed between God and men ceases. It's called reconciliation. In fact, Romans 8-9 says, You, however, Christian, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And in Philippians and in Corinthians it said, You don't have a mind of the flesh, you actually have the mind of Christ. Well, what's the mind of Christ about? Philippians 2 tells us the mind of Christ is the mind that seeks or sees others as more important than yourself. So as the hostility between God and men is diminished, guess what? The hostility between men and men is diminished. And so if you see strife and jealousy, especially within the body, there's a problem. A huge problem. There should be unity. There should be love. But the main issue that Paul has is not just that they're like, fighting. The main issue that he has is that their whole view of what the leaders are like are starting to impact the way they treat others. So he's like, let me tell you what your leaders are like, because you guys are starting to pick teams. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Let me just tell you what the leaders are like and how they are, in fact, unified. See, in picking teams, they've done two things, or made two mistakes. One is, they've thought too much of an individual, right? Apollos is awesome. Peter is awesome. Paul is awesome. I'm team Paul, right? But they've also, in that same statement, thought too less of other leaders. 
Because if Apollo rocks, Peter sucks. Right? Or Peter's awesome, Paul, no good. They're starting to make a hierarchy with leaders. And so Paul is going to basically condemn all of that and clarify for them essentially what is happening. He says, look, the leaders are unified in their work together. The leaders aren't picking teams, you guys are. And he says, the leaders are not only unified in the work, we depend on one another for each other's work. More than that, not only do we depend on one another, we actually know that we complement one another's work. Like, I can't do what Apollos does. And I can't do what Peter does. And he can't do what I do. We have different roles and we need each other. He basically says, we're servants. And literally, you know what that means? We're table waiters. Why are you making such a big deal about table waiters? You're not even making a big deal about the chef or the restaurant. It's like, man, what an amazing table waiter. Because I'm a table waiter. I'm a fellow worker on God's work site. I am a tool. I'm a tool in God's shed. Used by God to cultivate a field that he owns. Like, there would be no field without God. You could have a rake, but what good does that do you? What you see, he, he tells like the leaders, like the guys, the pastors, these guys that you're making much of, they're all under God. They have absolutely no independent importance in themselves. Not only that, they have no independent power. So as you begin to look at that in the church, it's like, I need you, you need me, we need each other, but God doesn't need us. Did you know that? That feels kind of bad. It's the truth. God doesn't need us to get his work done. But by his grace and privilege, he allows us. But you, you start pitting the rake against the shovel. That's what's happening. Like, well, the rake is awesome. No, the shovel is awesome. Try to dig a hole with a rake. Right? Like, I got this big pile of leaves. Well, give me the shovel. Well, I'm just kind of moving around. It doesn't work that way. I need a rake, and I need a shovel. I need both to cultivate. But not one is more better than the other. They're just different. And they're both awesome for the jobs that they have. Doug Wilson does a great job of describing men and women, right? Because we always have men and women pitted against each other. And when you read verses like in Peter, like, the woman's the weaker vessel. The lady's like, oh, I don't think so. Right? And why we're misunderstanding what's being said. And guys do it too. They're like, that's right. I'm the stronger vessel. Okay. Let's just be clear what it is. Wilson says that it's like looking at the differences between a hammer and a teacup. I'm not going to try and drink tea out of a hammer. And I'm not trying to hammer a nail with a teacup. But I certainly need to hammer a nail, and I occasionally need to drink tea, I guess. Right? But it's different and beautiful for what they are. So Paul says, look, what are you pitting the rake against the shovel for? We're all unified. We're all working together. And as you begin to pick teams, you know what you do? You dishonor God. How? Because he designed, made, and purchased the tool. 
And you're starting to tell me that tool's not as important as this tool. And we do that about other people all the time. That person's not a rake like me. I'm a rake. You ever seen him try to shovel leaves? I mean, he's not built to shovel leaves. Let's see you dig a hole. Right? And you begin to see the beauty of what God is building here. And Paul is trying to show them, look, you're going you're gonna to dishonor God who made these tools. And not only that, you're going to hurt that person. And you're going to hurt yourself in the process, and you're definitely going to hurt the family. And so he begins to extend it into the church. He's been talking about leaders. He's like, let me tell you what this looks like for his church. And so he starts saying this in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, he talks constantly about the grace of God, like, I am nothing, but made him a skilled master builder. He laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. He says, let each one take care of how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, this will be the day of judgment, the day when Jesus returns, this is going to be some hard crazy stuff here. I won't go into all of it. But for the day, capital D, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right? Purifying fire. So he shifts from talking about farms and agriculture to buildings. Like, let me show you how this looks like for the church, the people of God. So he describes himself as the master builder because he planted the church. It was difficult, but he laid a foundation. And that foundation was preaching Jesus. He walked in, proclaimed it very simply, very directly, said, You are a sinner. You have rebelled against your God, but you can be forgiven through faith, by grace, in Christ. Okay? There can be no other, there can be no building without a foundation. I mean, you can try, this won't last. You have to have a foundation for a building. And when you're talking about building church, there can be no other foundation than the gospel of Jesus Christ, though many have tried to build it on other things. And it won't last. Catch this. Even with the foundation laid, which is Jesus Christ, there's more to be built. We are individually and corporately, so individuals and together, a work in progress. We're a work in progress. Now, it would be appropriate to put on the front of our church and tattooed on our foreheads, under construction. Okay? And that should bring comfort to a lot of us. Because there's this idea out there that you should be like, perfect! All built... Well, that's not what the Bible says. Yes, we are perfect in the eyes of God. Yes, our hearts are completely transformed and we are saved and we are set apart. But let's be real, we're a work in progress. We're not complete. That's not the same as saying we're deficient. Why? Because Paul has already told the Corinthians that God's Spirit has given 
us all the materials that are needed to complete us. So what does that look like? A work site with piles of materials everywhere with a foundation that's laid. And so, for our faith and for our church, if we're a work in progress, if we are under construction, that means that our faith has some unfinished areas. That our faith has some exposed areas. Not because they're broken, but because it's not complete, right? There's a hole in the roof, not because the tree fell, because we haven't completed the roof yet. We have some weak spots. We even have some ugly areas because it's just partially constructed. You're like, that's just looking at I hope that gets covered up. It will someday. It will. Because God is faithful. And even if he builds slow, he builds. And slowly over time, the building takes shape and it looks beautiful and it begins to function exactly as God planned for it to function. So, with this analogy, if you go, okay, if there is more to build, then there are builders in the church. Now, Paul has already talked about leadership, so he's not talking about leadership anymore. He's talking about us. The church is full of builders. And he warns those who are working on the church. Now, that's not the leaders. He's already talked about them. That's us. We have a responsibility to work on in the church, to build up the church. The church, like the the people of God. We're to build into one another. And Paul is not concerned necessarily that people are working. He sees that. He's very concerned about how people are working. So think about this for a few things. There's some implications here for this. First and foremost, there's the implication that everyone is building. Or everyone is supposed to be building, right? Right? So imagine this is a work site, this is a construction zone, and through faith in Christ, you've been issued a hard hat. And some people are sitting with their hat on their belly, drinking a cup of coffee, while others are working. You have a responsibility. You're on a work site. Did you know that you were a fellow worker responsible to build God's church? So I think a lot of times we're always like, well, the pastor will do this. And leaders will do this. And those more qualified, you've got a hard hat. See, you don't go to a construction site to be entertained. You don't go to a construction site just to observe. You don't go to a construction site to see what the lunch truck's going to have for you. That's not the reason why you're at the construction site. In fact, the analogies Paul uses, the images, he uses three very often. He does the building here, but he also uses athletes and farmers and soldiers often. So think about what the opposite of those things are. He's like, be a builder, be an athlete, be a soldier, be a farmer. Okay, so the opposite of a soldier is a citizen who has someone else fight for him. The opposite of a farmer is a consumer. The opposite of an athlete is a spectator. And the opposite of a builder is a lazy person, I guess. I don't know. The non-builder. 
who watches it be built. The other thing he says, all right, well, if everyone's a builder, that means that everyone has something to contribute. Everyone has a role to play, a unique role to play, a beautiful role to play, right? There's a rake, there's a shovel, there's a hammer, there's a saw. We can't cut a board with a screwdriver. And so, if you are not fulfilling your job, guess what? There's something not being built. Did you ever think about that? My prayer is that we'll have such a sense of ownership to these people, to us, that we will be constructing it correctly and wisely and beautifully. But the worst thing is to go to a work site and you know, half the building's not being built because people are just drinking coffee and waiting for it to happen. And third, and maybe most importantly, Paul says, there's a right and wrong way to work. This is really an interesting part of Scripture that um, I'm probably going to have to blog on more because uh, I won't have time to go into it. But he says, look, there's a right and a wrong way to work. And um, there are people that, let's be honest, as they work and do stuff, young and old. And this is not just for the older people, right? I just told Fisher, my son, like, dude, you're going to start, like, doing slides now. Why? Because you're part of the church, man. It's time to grow up a little bit. Okay. And he gets excited to be part of it. But there are people who do lots of work, and honestly, they don't necessarily do it correctly. What do I mean? Well, there's people that misread blueprints blueprint. There are people that build at a turn, right? Put things, start building things at the wrong time when the house is not ready for it. Those who just do poor construction, those who cut corners, even those who sleep on the job. Paul says, look, there's good workmanship and poor workmanship, and you can get really good at working and doing the wrong things. And building the wrong way. And Paul says, we've got to test how we're working. Not just that we're working. Because you might actually be hurting the people of God. And then Paul says, one day Jesus, the building inspector, is going to come through with his flamethrower to test everything. How does that make you feel? Wait, wait. I'm being judged with fire? Your work is... Wait, this sounds like we're, I'm, he's talking to Christians. This isn't salvation, which perhaps is even more disturbing. He says, there's going to be workmanship tested. And there are two options. When Jesus pulls the trigger, it's either going to survive, which means there'll be a reward, or it'll burn up and there will be loss. Not penalty, loss, although some might view that as loss or penalty. See, poor materials and poor workmanship are not going to threaten the loss of salvation. You hear that? It's not going to threaten the loss. That's irrevocable. But Paul does indicate that there's some loss of future reward. What is that? I have no idea. But it's certainly sobering to think about. I don't think it's a bad thing to wish to desire reward from your Father. But when Jesus returns to judge His enemies for the rebellion, He's also going to judge the work of His people. 
not the hearts of his people, the work of his people. And on that day, genuine motivation and effort and spirituality of believers is going to be revealed for what it is. And some of what we've done, what we've thought we were building into is going to be revealed as merely human and fleshly and maybe self-centered. And it's going to reveal that it contributed absolutely nothing to the kingdom. Though it looked religious and spiritual. That should challenge us a little bit. But the last thing that Paul, I think, really hits home is he reminds us of what we're being built into. Not just some building. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So it begins with a don't you know statement, which happens about ten times in this letter, which again is speaking to people who say that really wise, like, you should know this. And so I say to the church, especially for those who are Christians, you should know what I'm about to tell you. Don't you know this? How would I know this? You read it in the Bible? So don't you know this? God is not done with us. And on the foundation of Jesus Christ, He is building the church, and He not only intends that to be a community project, He intends for it to look like something in particular and function like something in particular. So let me tell you what God is not building, because as we engage with the church, as we are part of the church, as Many of you have gone from church to church. You have, by your behavior and your participation, lack thereof, your contribution, lack thereof, have treated it like one of these things. See, God is not building a utility shed with really helpful tools for your life. For your better life now, as some pastors might say. God is not building a social club with really cool membership benefits. God is not building a hospital for the sick. Though I know we like that analogy and it feels good. God is not building a warehouse to store boxes full of Christian traditions that we never let die. But I think more appropriate for our culture is that God is not building some sort of theater where you are to be entertained or a restaurant where you can have it your way. You notice that's not what God said he's building. And if you are trying to build or expecting one of those things, careful, you may actually be working against God. And he says what happens to those who work against him. Because there's good work and poor work, and then there's bad work. And bad work, he destroys. God is not building us into anything designed to compete with the world. We are not meant for so little. God says through Paul that we are being built up as the temple of God. We are designed to be a place and a people of worship. Did you know that's why God saved you? To be a worshiper. 
He tells the Israelites, I'm going to take you out of slavery to worship. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, some may, some not, in the Old Testament, the temple was a building, very specifically built according to God's very specific instructions. It was the center of Israel's identity. It was built by King Solomon, who was the son of King David, who had set up all the materials for Solomon to do it. And it was the sacred sanctuary like no other found on the earth. And he designed it, God that is, to be more than a building. And among other things, it was, it was called many things, but it was mainly called the house of God because it housed the Ark of the Covenant, right? Think Indiana Jones, Ark of the Covenant. This is where God's Spirit dwelt. And so after many years of construction, he assembled all God's people, all the leaders had this big feast, this big concert, everything was awesome. And then the priests came in. And the priests had, were required to carry the Ark of the Covenant a very specific way. God had killed people for not carrying it correctly. Carried it in, took it into the most the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, placed it down there. And when the priests walked out, this is what happened in 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, when the priests came out of the holy place, having put that down, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's the temple. The place where God dwelt, where everyone could see so powerfully the priests could not even worship for a time because His presence was there. So, Paul says, that's the church. That's what the church is being built into. But what does that mean? Catch this. Like the temple, the church is being built and exists as a place where the Spirit of the Lord dwells with men. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The presence of God dwelling in you. And as we gather, the presence of God is in this place in a way that is not like anywhere else. And all too often, you go into churches and you measure their spirit-filledness with what kind of emotional response you have. Nothing wrong with tickles and tingles, right? Nothing wrong with that. But let's be honest, you can get tickles and tingles from all kinds of places. We know the Spirit of God is present here when we begin to see transformation, the power of God changing hearts. And I think emotion is great. I think more of us should raise our hands. More of us should show some emotion. You're so scared to do that. But that's not a sign of God's Spirit. A sign of God's Spirit is when lives are changed, when eyes are opened, when marriages are restored, when addictions are broken. That's where God's Spirit is, and that's supposed to be happening here in the church. The presence of God's Spirit. And God's Spirit, because He's individually in each of us, we also experience it as we interact with one another. And my Spirit begins to impact you, and you impact me, 
And sometimes we're painfully but always beautifully transformed because God's Spirit is with us. But also like the temple, what was it? That's where Israel gathered. That's where the people of God came together to do what? To worship. The temple was the place where people, yes, even back then, praised God in song as one voice. That's where they read the Word of God publicly. That's where they made sacrifices for their sins. That's where they made offerings to the Lord. Like We're not being built up to be more moral, more spiritual, more knowledgeable. We're being built up to be more worshipful. What does more worshipful look like? Here's what it looks like. More confessional, where we're confessing our sins to the Lord. More sacrificial and more God-honoring, where we are taking more parts of our lives and saying, how can I honor God with this? How can I worship God with how I speak? How can I worship God with my money? How can I worship God with my energy? How can I worship God with my time? How can I worship God with my parenting, with my sexuality? All those things. More worshipful. We come together to worship God. We come together to declare who God is and align ourselves with that. But lastly, as we do that, the temple was, for the world, a place where God's wisdom and glory was displayed. See, the people of God are supposed to give a picture to the world of what God's kingdom on earth looks like. And let's be honest, the church has done a crappy job of that. But let's not do a crappy job of that. Right, Damascus Road? Come on. Let's display what actual love for one another looks like. What worship of the true God looks like. What living like Jesus really looks like. Because God's not building us into some Christianized reproduction of some community center in the world. He is building something radically different, which is his kingdom on earth. And so we don't come to the world offering a better 2.0 version of themselves. We say your old self needs to die with Jesus and your new self needs to rise. We don't offer you a new and improved life. We don't have that. We offer a brand new life in Jesus. So I just, I ask you, Damascus Road, do you not know that we are a dwelling place of God? That we are built by God, on God, for God. And so if, if by God's Spirit, this is who we are, and this is who God is continuing to build us into to look like more, then everything in our lives, our attitudes, our perceptions, our decisions are going to be completely transformed more and more day by day. And what that will look like is you and I will stop asking me-centered questions. Like what? Well, questions like, how is this going to make me feel or look more spiritual? Or does this make me happy or benefit me in some way? Or how is this going to get me ahead? Or does this get me what I desire? Those are adolescent questions. 
Instead, we should be asking this, knowing what we are, knowing who God wants us to be. We ask God-centered questions like, does this bring me closer to God, into his presence more, where I must depend on him more, where I'm going to have to live by faith more? That's a good way to make a decision. Or a question like, does this decision, this action, this perception, this attitude bring more glory and honor to God? Or does this bring a greater witness to God? Does this make much and more of His name, even if it makes less of mine? Those are the kinds of questions we ought to ask as we are being built into a place and a people of worship. So, let me give you some comfort for those of you who have been building Maybe building poorly, building your own kingdom and not really worrying about God's work site. Or perhaps a lot of you sat with your head, your hard hats kind of under your arm. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start building because, quite frankly, God never gives up on you. And we'll close with this verse that Paul said in Philippians, which I've been spending a lot of time in. And I am sure of this for you whoever you are. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as you come this morning, and I pray that you will, I would ask you to take a minute before you do and let the fire of God's Spirit evaluate your work before the day. And if you are not a Christian, if you basically have been kind of building your own kingdom, I would just warn you right now, in the end, it's not going to survive. And even now, at some point, it's not going to satisfy. But there is a kingdom being built that has been built that will satisfy and will last forever. And for those of you who are Christians, who quite frankly have been living as spectators, living as the builders who don't build, I would ask that you would see yourself as part of something. Something awesome. Not Damascus Road, but the people of God. And you have a role to play. And I pray you'll refuse to be that adolescent baby, adult-sized baby. Pick up a hammer, put your hand on the plow, and go. And trust that, you know, you're not in charge of the fruit. You're just in charge of being faithful. Let God worry about production. Amen.